This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Worried about your loved ones in long-term care homes? Dr. Roger Wong of the University of British Columbia advises when and how you can see them. Pregnant or know someone who is in this pandemic? Dr. Nicole Thompson, OBGYN, puts your mind at ease. Dr. Gurdip Parhar answers all of your COVID-19 questions from vaccines to flu to antioxidants. COVID kissing isn't safe, we know, but what about sex? I'm not so sure. Tune in to learn more. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. He works tirelessly to advance academic and clinical health sciences related to geriatrics, and his work has significant impact on the care for older people in Canada and beyond. He was president of the Canadian Geriatric Society and founded the -the state-of-the-art Acute Care for Elders Unit, ACE, in Vancouver, British Columbia, which has been implemented nationally and internationally. On the line is Dr. Roger Robert Wong. Good evening. Hello, is this Roger Wong here, Maureen? Hello. Nice to have you. Roger, nice to have you on the line. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Oh, that's so great. Now, this is such an issue. Uh, our, our seniors living in long-term care homes. And I had a question a couple of weeks ago from a woman whose husband, who was 83 years of age, and she was wondering when she would be able to go in and visit her uh, husband, her beloved husband, who she hadn't seen for weeks, and might there be any uh, ways that she could see him? And, and my suggestion was, as the weather gets better, could the seniors, the residents, be brought outside in lawn chairs and their, and their loved ones be far away with masks? And is that a possibility? Or when do you think that people can visit their loved ones? Mm-hmm. Well, I can entirely understand how difficult this situation must be. As a geriatric specialist, it saddens me a lot to see that um, while we want to protect seniors, in particular those who are living in long-term care homes from um, contracting COVID-19 and developing the serious illness, we also need to be cognizant and be aware that there could be an unintended consequence of social isolation or loneliness. What I've been sharing with people is uh, physical distancing, which is, again, to keep that separation between any two individuals by at least two meters, uh, does not mean social isolation. So to answer your question, um, this is part of a public health recommendation, and I understand that the provincial health officer, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has indicated a couple of days ago during one of the uh, press conference that um, um, her team is... uh, very much aware of the importance of trying to reconnect loved ones and family members um, so that they can stay socially engaged with seniors who are living in care homes. I guess um, we will be following advice from public health when the visitation restriction um, can be uh, relieved or modified. We do know that physical distancing is very effective in helping to protect seniors from contracting the disease. However, I also would remind um, all of us that um, even during the, given the current visitation restriction arrangement, there are situations whereby families and loved ones can still go in and visit their loved ones 
in care homes, and those will be situations whereby um, a individual is uh, in need to help out with an essential part of the care, for example, during feeding, or uh, in particular, there are family members who have been doing a lot of things that are very unique to uh, their loved ones. So an example that I would give is for those who are living with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. We know that their ability to understand what is going on with COVID-19 and the pandemic and then the need for physical distancing, um, they, they may not have a good understanding. And so um, if a selected individual, a family member who is a designated person um, needs to be uh, with their loved one in a care home and provided that there is clear communication with, say, the director of care within a care home setting and with all the protective measures, be it, you know, wearing um, personal protective equipment as well as having extremely good hand hygiene and personal hygiene and keeping that physical distancing outside of the care home with the rest of the community. I think some of those situations uh, can still be discussed with um, the, the staff and the uh, people who are actually uh, running the care homes. So are you anticipating a loosening of restrictions on visiting loved ones in long-term care homes in the near future, say phase two or phase three? Well, I think if you look at the different phases, um, the provincial health officer hasn't indicated exactly which of the phases would include measures in terms of loosening the visitation restriction that is currently placed on care home. And again, we have to remember the original intention is to protecting seniors so that they do not um, get uh, COVID-19 because we know that in many of these situations, the concern is that the infection, the virus infection is being brought in into the care homes, in particular those seniors who are physically uh, not able to move around very well or they may have mental health condition such as dementia and therefore their ability to to kind of go around the community is somewhat restricted. I will say though my understanding from public health and again from the provincial health office is that they are um, actively thinking of ways to while um, get people to go into uh, visiting seniors living in care home uh, uh, so that they can be socially engaged. At the same time, how can this be done safely? And I think it is finding the balance between safety and uh, social engagement. And you did a fabulous TEDx talk, how to keep your elderly parents safe and in their home. We don't have a lot of time left, but do you think that's actually more ideal? And I know it can't happen in all situations, but do we need to change how we... Uh, manage senior care in Canada? Mm -hmm. Well, Maureen, I do think that there are lots of things that we have learned and we need to uh, learn and act quickly and actively from a system, a health and social system approach in terms of, you know, what are we able to do to support seniors in terms of where they live, whether they live in a community now or they live in care homes. I do think that we need to use the learning, the science, but to also add in the compassion that we need Wonderful. so that we can drive policies. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Roger Wong, the University of British Columbia. I'll get you back, Dr. Wong, because you're a wealth of information. Joining me on the line is OBGYN resident Dr. Nicole Thompson. Good evening, Dr. Thompson. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Hi. 
Good, you? I'm fine, thank you. So thanks so much for joining me this evening. Now, one of the issues with some of the data that we're we're collecting is that there's not that much just yet. Even though we've had millions of cases of COVID-19, we're still learning so much and we're, we're seeing the mortality rates and it seems to be random. It affects people differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's understandable that pregnant people would be very nervous um, and not to mention the obstetricians who are delivering the babies or midwives, um, yeah. for that matter. Um, you know, they would. So what is it that obstetricians need to know? Uh, or, or what is it that uh, uh, can calm the minds of pregnant people? So we've had a couple of studies, and I just did another scour of literature today to see if there was anything new. Uh, but there was a meta-analysis released uh, this week, actually, in the American Journal of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology that had data from patients in China who were studied. And the data from from those studies looked at like preterm births, so births of babies before 37 weeks, patients who developed preeclampsia, which is a a blood pressure disorder related to the placenta in pregnancy, uh, and also looked at C-section rates. And those, you know, sort of specific indicators in pregnancy in the study from China were slightly higher in people who were diagnosed and hospitalized for COVID-19 and were also um, there for their delivery. There was another study looking at patients from New York, again, published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, looking at patients who presented to the labor and delivery unit. And their specific data actually demonstrated a little bit different information. So very few, so only two out of the 18 people um, had preterm deliveries. None of the patients in that study had preeclampsia or the the, uh, blood pressure disorder and only a slightly higher risk of cesarean section with a rate of 44%. So I think, you know, we really are learning a lot as we go and just, you know, trying to publish the data as quickly as we can and publish our experiences and be as careful as we can. But the reality is, is we just don't know. But the comparison data right now between COVID-19 and other coronaviruses such as MERS or SARS is showing that the coronavirus or like COVID-19 is affecting pregnant women at very similar rates as it's affecting the non-pregnant population. And The disease severity in pregnant people is also not any worse in pregnant people than we're learning in the non-pregnant population, uh, which we know is different from the SARS and the MERS viruses as well, where one study actually had a case fatality rate of 25% in pregnant people. And in none of our studies, the ones in China, the ones that have been published from New York, we haven't seen any maternal deaths, nor have we seen any uh, neonatal deaths that we think are directly related to COVID-19. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the data seems to be different and, and it's small numbers, these mm-hmm. studies. They're not... They're Very not, small. Yeah. So it's also, we, we need bigger numbers. I realize that. But the data coming out of Wuhan, China and New York seems to be quite different. Um, mm-hmm. There is a distrust mm-hmm. with China. Um, for some people. I I don't know if that exists or not. Um, Should obstetricians be more uh, acutely aware, as if they're not? I mean, they they certainly Mm. are in every patient, but um, be more acutely aware of preeclampsia or or maybe have a lower threshold for some of those complications that can occur in women. 
Yeah, and so that's the the recommendation right now is that um, persons who are close to delivery or having uh, symptoms of COVID-19 are, you know, to present to hospital and be monitored and like have fetal monitoring. Uh, so we can be a lot more careful. We are uh, in some hospitals in Vancouver, we've implemented universal testing for people presenting to a labor and delivery unit, not all of them. Um, there's some in Fraser that have not implemented universal testing as of yet, but I think it just has to do with availability of screening and testing and things like that. I think it is to come. Um, but yeah, I think I think we do need to be more cautious and we also you know, still need to respect people's birth stories and how they want to deliver. The The C-section rate in China was 91%. Wow. Whereas the C-section rate in New York for COVID-positive patients is only 44%. Wow. And Keep in mind that the C-section rate is like anywhere between 18 and 30%, depending on where you go in Canada. Right, right. Uh, so it sounds like people are being more careful uh, in both mm-hmm. places, but it also may underscore the control that they may have imposed on people in mm-hmm. Wuhan, China. We don't know. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of an opinion question. Is it fair, you know, that at some hospitals they're doing testing for, and, and let's just be real, the testing has been spotty and in, inaccurate mm-hmm. and uh, not enough and inadequate. And But, you know, how fair is it? And, and are pregnant people going to want to go to the hospital that's actually doing the testing uh, so they can take appropriate measures? But how fair is that for Canadians? You know, it's it's interesting to bring up the equity question, actually, because I think that there's a lot of inequity with regards to the COVID-19 virus and how specific populations of people are being treated. Um, so I, I couldn't agree I with you can, more. I don't know if I can answer that. Like at one of our hospitals here, in order to have a, your partner there for the cesarean section, you have to have a negative COVID swab. You know, so there's some people with very low suspicion, even though that we, we're aware that many patients with COVID-19 are asymptomatic, but many partners who present and need a quicker delivery who don't have their COVID swab come back yet, who are not allowed to have their partner in the delivery. Right. So, you know, so I think it's, you know, to balance out safety versus patient experience, um, you know, I think there's a lack of equity all around just because we don't know, we don't have the data to advise exactly what we're supposed to do. I think the best thing we could do right now is to try what we can, use the information we have at the time, collect the data and continue to use the data to inform our decisions and just continue to learn from this experience. This is something completely novel. Yes, it absolutely is. And and I do think like I, it's one thing about me, if you, you can say a lot about me, but you can't say I'm not fair. <laughs> that's one, <laughs> one of the things is I'm always like, I just want to be fair. Let's be fair here. Yeah. And that's really important uh, for me. And to me, it seems that pregnant people who are getting, you know, and I totally agree with you. There have been so many inequities in terms of this, virus and how it has affected different groups uh but pregnant people where it's it's a small you know it's a smaller demographic if you will a group of people than some other groups that have been affected and and it seems to me that standardization of protocol and and fairness and equity it's it's probably the easiest to be able to do there yeah and and i think the goal is to move towards that but it's really hard to standardize process when you don't have the information to inform it. And so, 
you know, my my position, even though it is morally distressing for me uh, <laughs> to learn about specific situations and be fired up about things, but it's really just to respect that and believe truly that people are doing the best they can with the information they have at the time. Right. And, and I feel that we... You know, it's best to something else about me. Err on the side of caution, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially true. when you know lives are at, at stake, um, or mm-hmm. you know, pregnant people have an excessive amount of worry. Many of them to begin with, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and so then to add insult to injury here, um, I yeah. think it's you know, and 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 so I think it deserves compassion and empathy. And, and I think that, um, you know, hopefully we come out of this uh, as a, a more compassionate, kinder, more equitable world, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I think um, it's, it's hit certain groups incredibly, um, mu- much more so than others and, and people with certain health conditions that may not have access to health care. That's certainly not fair around the world either. Oh, 100%. I 100% agree with you. Yes. And so yeah. I, I mean, that's my, my little hope anyway. Um, but uh, what would you suggest to put the minds? I do also like to, I'm sharing a lot about who I am or who I think I am I anyway. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> I also love to put people's minds at ease. Like, yeah. I just think that's yeah. the greatest gift. And, and in fact, that was something that my mother taught me was yeah. that a great gift was peace of mind. And I think that's success. I, I think that's the definition of success. I think it's it's so critically important to be able to put people's minds at ease um, yeah. because, you know, there's nothing like needless worry or, you know, so and I try to get the information as quickly as possible to people, especially in my arena of healthcare. Um, but what would you three things that you would, you know, say or one or whatever that you would say to pregnant people to put their minds at ease in this time of coronavirus? Yeah. So the first the first thing I would tell people is that overall, the data that we're seeing, and especially from North America, where it's been published a little bit later than the earlier cases in China, uh, is showing that the outcomes from pregnancy are actually quite good. Um, And that any of the complications that do arise from COVID-19 are things that we in the obstetrics world are pretty familiar with dealing with. Um, And so I I actually think we're doing a very, very good job managing these patients and like the outcomes are wonderful. There are no um, no reported cases right now of vertical transmission, zero, in either China or anywhere in North America. So we know that people who are pregnant are not giving the coronavirus to their child through the placenta, through breast milk, or anything like that. So I think that that's also very reassuring. And I, the other reassuring thing is we are learning and we are creating you know, really good data with which to inform our policies and we will do our absolute best to keep people safe. And I, and I do think we are. So I think based on, you know, our local experience, we haven't published any of it as of yet. It's really hard to get papers published um, in a short amount of time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I think we are doing a very good job and our outcomes, our local outcomes here in Canada and in BC have been absolutely fantastic and not very different from our rates before coronavirus. Dr. Gurdeep Parhar joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. 
Good evening, Maureen, and a happy Mother's Day to everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, to all of you great mothers out there. Uh, this is a worry for mothers and, and everybody else, this pandemic in which we're dealing. We're now seeing uh, a, an inflammatory disease in children that has um, uh, led to three New York deaths that's, that are related to rare COVID-related inflammatory illnesses, 73 children sick, 500 new cases a day in New York City, uh, 200 deaths still. Uh, we're, we've flattened the curve here in many parts of Canada. British Columbia has done quite well. We're still seeing spikes in Alberta. Um, what's, uh, we're talking about opening up. People are nervous. Uh, they have questions about it. And my first question is from Mary on the line from Winnipeg. Good evening, Mary. Thanks for taking my call, Maureen, and happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask, oh, first I want to say thanks. It really helped about when I asked a question last week. It was very helpful to me. So, firstly, I want to ask, you, you Maureen, had mentioned um, an amino acid that's helpful with COVID, and I'm wondering if there's any trials with uh, a synthetic version of that amino acid. The exod? Yeah. Uh, there have been, not in particular that I'm aware of, maybe Dr. Parhar is aware of those, but I can send you the information that I have. Not uh, specifically related to COVID-19 are there. There's a hope that this is a bit of a foundation. It was exercise physiology research that had been done, um, but uh, hoping that it would inspire other researchers uh, in that field. So, But I can email you. If you leave your email information yeah, sure. with, Bren- and with Brendan. And Par- Parhar, have you heard of any research done on it, on that Not- amino acid and using it in the treatment of covid yeah, not specifically, um, but Mary, you're asking a, a, a great question, is that there's over sort of 90 trials going on right now around the world on ver- with various sort of um, treatment modalities, and um, I, don't, I can't remember the last time we've had this much uh, commotion around um, people trying to find either a new vaccine or a new treatment, and, um, you know, I think we just are all waited, waiting with bated breath to see which one of these is truly successful, so, and- you know, if they've yeah, this this may be one of them. Secondly, I want to say to you, with the people in Montreal, the long-term uh, healthcare unit, where the results were dismal, I think 90% had died in the home. Isn't that, aren't those results predictable? Because most people in nursing homes are... Um, what you know, the medical directive says, do not resuscitate, give comfort care. And I assume the medical director would have made that call for those patients. So that's a really good question. So, so what you're, what you're um, alluding to is that um, a lot of times when people are in older ages of life where they have chronic illnesses, they, they say, enough's enough. I don't want to be taken out of my residence, which is the care facility, and back into a hospital. Or if I'm in a hospital, I don't want to be put on a ventilator or put into the ICU. And that's what we call, as you said, the personal directive or um, you know, a, a directive that if life gets that bad or your health gets that bad, that's just, that is what you want done. Now, we have to remember that 
not being admitted to the ICU or not being um, admitted to hospital doesn't mean we stop caring for those patients. So the fact that they've died, though, is still unacceptable. Um, and, and, you know, we need to figure out what is it that um, we could have done differently to, to protect those vulnerable people. Yes, they didn't want to be in the ICU and they didn't, perhaps didn't want to get transferred to hospital, but, but that doesn't mean that they um, were, were um, okay with infections coming into their facilities either. So, so no, I, I agree. I agree that perhaps more could have been done and perhaps it wasn't because of the directives, but how did the infection get there and is there something that we could have done to prevent that? Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary, for your call. Uh, Antonio from Vancouver is on the line. Hello, Antonio. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, so I just had a couple of questions. My my mother, she's, gonna, she's uh, 81 years old almost, and she has some uh, health conditions, right? Like she's, And so she's going into the hospital to get some stress testing on her heart because they think she might uh, have, you know, some heart, like she has hypertension and she has a bunch of conditions. Anyway, she has to get do a stress test and an echocardiogram. So she's going to be at the hospital for a number of hours. Um, what would be the best, Matt? Because I have like a couple of N95s, just like single ones that were sealed in a Ziploc bag that I had, that I had from before from my work. And then I have like the blue paper mask uh, and then my, you know, the cloth mask that's, that my sister and my wife had made. What would be the best mask for her to wear when she's in the hospital doing that? Like, would it be best for her to protect herself with the N95 uh, for, for the day? Dr. Parker, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so generally, what, um, another very, very great, very good question. So generally, we're telling people uh, to avoid using the N95 or other medical masks because we're trying to save them for the um, for the uh, healthcare providers and first responders. But having said that, if you already have it and you're not otherwise going to give it to those first responders, you know, giving it to your mom to use while she's in the facility or visiting there for those testing would be totally okay. Um, but but if you didn't have an N95 mask, then, uh, then any of the other masks that you said would be okay. And just to remind everyone, and Maureen said this many times, the mask protects other people from getting the infection from your mother. Um, and so it won't necessarily protect her from others. But let me tell you, and this is important, is that tests such as cardiac tests need to be done. And I think many people have been postponing those tests and unfortunately putting their health at jeopardy. So um, I strongly encourage that your mother go through with the test and, and wear whichever one of those masks that you have access to. Yeah, that, you make a great point, Dr. Parhar. And I do want to say that um, the N95 masks are typically fitted uh, for healthcare providers. So, for example, I've said this before many times, my size is 1860S because I was actually fitted, fit tested for it. And the N95s that come in those packages, and I do know exactly what you're talking about, uh, they may or may, may not be, I don't know, CSA approved, but... Also, this, the N95 masks are diff, more difficult for people to breathe um, when keeping them on. So with your mom, I'd probably bring a few choices of the mask, uh, especially if you have plenty of them. Uh, and if she can't tolerate the N95, then, you know, the, the other one would be as adequate. Thank you very much. Antonio, if you want to perhaps win one of the prizes, you can leave your information with Brendan. Yeah, I I just had a one follow-up if I could. But, oh, sure. Go ahead. Um, just because there's a lot of talk of like the, you know, and I and I don't believe it, but I'd like to dismiss maybe people who would think that, that there's a concern of wearing a mask a lot and that you're breathing back the, the CO2. Dr. Parr, can you, can you clear that up? Because I I don't believe that, you know, that, that's a detriment, but I'd like to hear from a doctor. What, 
I love I love your medical opinion on it, and and I think you're absolutely right. Is the, the, certainly the amount of CO two that you would be rebreathing in is is not significant, and for someone who has an otherwise normal sort of lung function or respiratory function, that shouldn't be an issue. There was a video going around um, on the internet that uh, that stated exactly that, and uh, that's incorrect information. Antonio, great questions. Thanks so much, and I wish your mother well. Thank you very much. Yeah, we were disappointed her test got postponed when everything came down. She was yeah. postponed for all this testing, so we're happy she's able to get her testing done, done now. So. Well, I'm very happy about that, too, and I hope it all turns out very well for her. And, and Maureen, if just a, uh, a quick comment is that um, we, we, Dr. Henry noted this as well, is that we've had an increased number of non-COVID-type deaths in the province. And what we think is happening is people have been postponing um, visiting the emergency room when they've had chest pain or other significant cardiac or other health problems. So, you know, I think the emergency rooms and others are ready um, for people to visit them. And please don't postpone getting attention if you have any significant heart, heart or other health condition going on. Great point. Absolutely. And uh, some people got that, some people might not get it. And uh, (laughs) they're loosening restrictions or talking about loosening restrictions. And people have taken that to a whole new level. Uh, Dr. Parhar, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen those pictures uh, all around of people on the beach not physically distancing. Uh, I have a couple of great questions here, Dr. Parhar. I'll, oh, absolutely. All right, I'll read the first text message from Eric. If the virus mutates so much, since there are at least four strains so far, how can a vaccine be made versus just a seasonal shot similar to a seasonal flu shot that includes multiple strains of COVID-19? Um, so right now, we're not absolutely sure how many true mutations there actually are. And just to remind everyone, viruses mutate every time they, rep- they reproduce, but those mutations may not be significant enough that separates one virus from another virus. So it depends on how significant or how big of a change each mutation is. But if it truly is like the flu, the, 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 the caller or the questioner is absolutely right, is that then we'll be chasing it like we do with the flu and there, we may not have one vaccine. We may need to create several different vaccines. Right now, the thinking is that we possibly can still, like, still um, solve it with one vaccine. And if the significant mutations happen, then we'll have to address that later. Let's hope we can find a vaccine for this. Keep in mind, there's no vaccine for HIV, MERS, SARS. Uh, so that is... Uh... Yeah. And on that note, Maureen, there are studies. Oxford is doing some now that have gone into phase one and some into phase two soon. But people are already being injected with some of these experimental vaccines. So, And that is moving at record pace. Um, and, and how we've uh, made vaccines in the past where we take inactivated vac- um, viruses is a little different than the way they're doing now with segments of um, DNA and RNA. So it could be a lot faster than some of us had been expecting. Let's hope. I'm hoping for that. Uh, Michael has... Uh a question about COVID-19. Hi guys, do you think regular flu will be reduced significantly because of us trying to avoid COVID? Can you get the flu and COVID simultaneously? That's from Mike from Victoria. So I think 
there was a lot of things we could have all done better to avoid the common flu or the the regular flu we see each season. And and believe it or not, it was the same stuff. Don't go to work when you're sick. Don't cough and sneeze on people. Keep washing your hands. And if we're all now even more careful of uh, of doing all of that because of COVID-19 and how serious COVID-19 is, you're absolutely right. I think that we should be transmitting less of the regular flu as well. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you have both at the same time? I, I suppose you could. Um, that would be very, very unlucky and very, very unfortunate. Um, but I think it's the COVID-19 that we think would be the more serious infection um, if you did have both at the same time. Right. And I just wanted to point out that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they put out a weekly U.S. influenza surveillance report, Mike. You want, might want to head to their uh, website, the Flu View, um, and it does, in, in fact, confirm what Dr. Parhar said, that the cases are reduced in part because of what we have been doing, what we should have been doing all the time, not going to work when we're sick. It was a big one, washing hands extensively. I think this has been a gigantic teaching session in how to wash hands for people, so I'm not sure a lot of people knew how to do that appropriately before. Uh, Dr. Parhar, there's been a lot of talk about reopening, of course, as economic pressures. People are concerned about that. Uh, the economy, although given all the stimulus packages, the uh, the um, stock exchange is, um, is up. Um, so we're seeing stocks rise, but that may be um, false for now. Uh, are we really ready to reopen? And what needs to happen before we can reopen our economies, before people can go back to work? So what the World Health Organization has done is they've, they've laid out the criteria. Now, you can really get granular about what those specific details are. One is, is the transmission of the virus under control? That means, is it going rampant and everybody's getting it, or is it truly under control? <clears throat> is the healthcare system ready? Can we truly test all the people we need to test and isolate them and treat them um, aggressively? Um, are there fewer outbreaks? And we've seen a lot of outbreaks now. We're talking about the meatpacking plants and poultry and stuff, but are we at the, and in the extended care facilities and in our in our prisons, but are they truly minimized? Our workplaces and schools, um, are there measures in place there? Um, are people that come into our area, and Dr. Henry has spoken about a firewall, but people that come into the area from travel abroad, are we truly able to contain that? Um, and do people understand what the new normal is? So we need a bunch of criteria to be in place. I think we're close to it, Maureen. I have to admit, I'm one of the more nervous people around this, and when the Premier said this isn't um, the switch, the flipping of a switch, I think he was absolutely right. Um, so when, as of next weekend, when we can now start interacting physically with two to six people, I think we really have to be cautious about who those two to six people are. I, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, but I think a lot of people heard a mixed message, uh, especially in British Columbia and perhaps in other provinces across Canada as well, that, uh, you know, we're talking about reopening, flattening curves in certain areas. And, and we saw photographs online anyway of people obviously not physically distancing. The traffic in many areas across the country reported to be at much higher higher rates. Um, it, it is Mother's Day. Uh, you know, are people jumping the gun on this? And what, are, what could we see possibly if we reopen too early? I think you're going to see a spike of cases, um, both number of cases in the community and also then hospitalization and ICU and then unfortunately um, deaths occurring. So I think people need to be really cautious about this. Because I have, when, oh, go ahead. I just have a caller uh, on the line that I don't want to. No, 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 no problem. I was just right. saying that I, I think at the end, um, you, we need to make sure that we don't do this um, um, too fast and without thinking. Perfect. Okay. Laura from Calgary is on the line. Hi, Laura. 
Hi, Maureen and Dr. Parhar. Really enjoying the show. It's excellent information. And my Thank quick you. question is, um, people that have recovered from the COVID virus, is there any uh, lasting effects from it that people, like I know taste and smell people have said uh, that they had lost. Does, does that come back? We've got about 30 seconds, Dr. Parha. Yeah, so we don't we haven't studied enough for the long term effects and um so taste and smell for some people are persisting as problems, but the bigger issues that we're worried about are are long term uh, consequences on their lungs. Some people are saying that they're still having uh, fuzzy sort of thinking and the neurological sort of um um being isn't as good as it was before. But that remains to be seen and I think we're gonna have to follow these patients for months into the future. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.